This is a Federal News Network podcast. By several measures, Social Security is an agency in some crisis. Its labor relations are strained with ongoing uncertainty over their contract and when and how people will return to offices. It has difficulty on the customer service front, prompting tough questions from Capitol Hill, including Democrats. And there's no Senate-confirmed commissioner. For some perspective, we turn to former Commissioner Mike Astru. Mr. Astru, good to have you on. Thank you for having me back. And there's a little bit of a repeat of history here. You were appointed by George W. Bush and then served two years there and two years under the Obama administration. And there wasn't all this political brouhaha, if I recall correctly. Actually, I served four under President Obama. So, you know, there are some stresses when you're reporting to a president who did not appoint you. But I think it's a credit to both of us that, you know, we managed to work that out. And there was not, on my watch, significant controversy that came from the fact that President Obama had not appointed me. I mean, I I guess my feeling is if you're in public service, you're really serving the public. And your job is to, with all the people that you have to deal with, to try to figure out the way to do the best job you possibly can. And, you know, there's always going to be different people with different points of view, even in administrations where you were appointed. It worked out reasonably well, I think, with President Obama. And it was in those years, I believe, that the first of the baby boomers officially reached retirement and Social Security age. And so it was the beginning of a ramp up, I guess, of recipients in terms of sheer numbers. Yes. And I think from an agency workload point of view, even more difficult was the increase in disability applications because, you know, you reach what the agency calls the disability-prone years before you get to 62, and disability applications went up quite a bit, and they're much more labor-intensive. And we managed to make retirement applications much more automatic. We didn't require original birth certificates on my watch. We totally redid the online application to make it much easier and more convenient. And we got some great help from Patty Duke promoting that. And so that saved us a fair amount of workload. But that all got eaten up on the disability side because, you know, you have to go through medical records with great care. Medical records are much larger than they were 40 years ago. When I reviewed my first disability application in 1983, you know, you'd get a 10-, 15-page medical record in most cases, whereas now, you know, you're typically looking at medical records that run 500,000 pages. So it's a lot more labor-intensive. There were a lot more applications. And then when the economy went down the tubes, you know, people are desperate and more people apply. And it's been shown big dips in the economy, disability applications, not just for Social Security, but other kinds of disability, increased rather dramatically. So we had huge workloads during my time. And just fast-forwarding to recent history and looking from the outside, what do you think Andrew Saul was trying to do? What do you think his organizing principle was for the agency? Because he didn't give interviews very much or at all, and it was pretty much Andy versus the world from what it looked like externally. The sense that I generally had was they were trying to quiet things down. You know, there was no successor between our time, and there was an acting, long-term acting, who quite frankly, did a brutal job and pretty much 
every significant service metric went backwards dramatically. I mean, we spent six years driving down the hearing backlog, which was considered a national scandal and was on CBS Evening News and all that kind of stuff. And, and we took it down very significantly. And then under Carolyn Colvin, it went back up faster than it went down. And a lot of the other significant measures of service to the public deteriorated very rapidly. So I think my sense of what Andrew was trying to do was to try to stabilize the agency in a time when it didn't have a lot of money, wasn't getting a lot of attention from the White House or the Congress, and just try to get some sense of normalcy back to the agency. And that's kind of my sense of what they were trying to do. We're speaking with Mike Astro. He's former commissioner of Social Security. And they now have labor unions that are pretty crabby because there has been no change in the labor contract they say was imposed on them during the Trump administration. And now you have acting commissioner Kijikazi, whose term seems to be expired right now as an acting, and there's 210 days since she was appointed in July 9th. So what's your advice at this point for how they need to proceed, the administration and then whoever comes in as commissioner? Well, I think what's disappointing is just this sense of neglect. You know, it's been 14, 15 months now that they've had the time to decide what they wanted to do at Social Security. And they haven't made a decision. And I think that's demoralizing for the agency. It tends to freeze decision-making. I think it's hard to justify. You look at sort of how positions are filled in other agencies, and you say, well, how come not at Social Security? Is it just not as important? It's frustrating. And I agree with you. I believe that the acting commissioner is up um, any day, and there's been no announcement on that. You know, the concern is that they're just going to do nothing. And although violation of the Vacancy Act often doesn't bring the agency to its knees, it's demoralizing for employees. It invalidates certain types of actions or keeps the commissioner from doing certain types of things and creates enormous uncertainty. And the last thing that the agency needs with, you know, underfunding and everything else that's going on is uncertainty. So it would be a very helpful thing for improving service delivery for the White House to decide what direction does it want to go at Social Security and try to find the very best person that they can to run the agency. Yes, because Social Security law hasn't changed that much, so the mission of the agency is not really in question. It's a matter, then, you're saying of finding the right leadership to carry out the mission and then focusing on the customer service metrics that still aren't very good right now by most of the surveys and measures, and then funding it adequately to make sure it can do the mission efficiently. That's right. And I think that presidents of both parties, but particularly Democratic presidents, make the mistake of thinking that the primary qualification for this job is a policy background. And I would challenge that. Major policy decisions just don't happen at Social Security. And Congress has decided it's the third rail of American politics. The last time they really did anything significant in terms of major policy was 1983. And I don't think there's any likelihood that they're going to do anything substantial soon. So it's an incredibly complicated management job. And unfortunately, there's a history, and again, both parties, but particularly with the Democrats, of nominating candidates without any management experience whatsoever. And to get it into an agency where you have sixty to 70,000 employees to manage, and you've got 
enormous budgetary issues. You've got workloads going through the roof. You have antiquated technology. You have lots and lots of problems. It is really almost unfair to throw someone in who's managing people for the first time and whose background is policy because they don't get to do policy, but they got to do a lot of management of a very complex organization, and it's a tough one to learn on the job. And how did you find dealing with the major unions there, the AFGE councils? Impossible. I mean, they've been confrontational since the 60s and not really, in my opinion, interested in improving service to the public. They're interested in expanding the number of employees and and that type of thing. And I found them excessively confrontational, dishonest, really, in reporting what was being said and done in the agency, and really very determined not to cooperate in a Republican administration. Now, in Democratic administrations, they have what's called partnership, and in Social Security, White Houses have pretty much interpreted that almost as co-management, which makes it very difficult to make change and very difficult to improve service, which is why, you know, under Carolyn Colvin, for instance, service went backwards in every conceivable way because I don't think she had the vision, but she also had her hands tied by the union. And you worry in this administration that it's going to be back to the same thing where you can't make the changes that you need to improve the quality of work unless the union approves them. Yeah, so a lot to think about. Then the next commissioner then will have the challenge of the labor front and, as you say, the operational issues and let Congress worry about the policy. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's going to be hard to find someone with the right background that's going to take this on. I mean, I think it's a very difficult job. You take a lot of unfair criticism. You're going to face a lot of frustration. And you can kind of see that, you know, there's the turnover in the civil service, particularly in the senior executive service, uh, as I understand it, is really increasing at a substantial rate. So that Frustration is not restricted just to the political people at the top, but the whole 150 or so senior executive service people at the top layer of civil service management, I think, are very frustrated. And I know that they're losing a lot of the most capable and experienced ones long before you know you would expect them to retire. Michael Astro is former commissioner of Social Security. Thanks so much for joining me. All right. Thanks. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Sign up for the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. 
She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I 
talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with a level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job. And then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.